So I've had the opportunity to, to uh, open God's Word to you in the past, and uh, the Lord in my own life has really opened up for me the Old Testament in the last, oh, I don't know, three or four years. Um, so I just really love the Old Testament, and I really want to encourage you uh, to fall in love with the Old Testament as well. Um, it's, uh, it's our story, and um, it's really our story, our heritage, and uh, it's been written and preserved, uh, like all of Scripture, uh, for us. And what I like about it is it so clearly uh, presents the gospel. And, um, and so we also have the added benefit of the Old Testament, of reading it, and through the lens of, of course, the New Testament writers. And as I read the Old Testament, I'm amazed at the extreme measures of how our great God um, that he goes to, uh, to uh, communicate to his people. And, uh, uh, of course, you know, we tend to think he primarily communicated through word, thus saith the Lord, this is what the Lord says, and he did. Uh, but not only the spoken word, as powerful as that is in and of itself, um, but the way he demonstrates his word, uh, I find fascinating. And uh, so he doesn't just proclaim the gospel to his people, he demonstrates it. And um, uh, he demonstrates it in uh, some very clear and unambiguous ways. And in ways that um, are meant to be clearly understood uh, by his people. Uh, of course, who have been given ears to hear and eyes to see. And so, uh, not only does he uh, uh, appeal uh, and communicate to us emotionally, but never intended that that would be the only way, but through our, uh, not, uh, our mind as well as our five senses, um, sight, sound, touch, and um, taste. And even through our own spirit, the Bible says. So the scriptures are, are replete with examples where the Lord demonstrates his word uh, from speaking creation into existence uh, to, of course, the ultimate expression of God's word, the incarnation of God himself, his son. And so the living word. And so he uh, has, has uh, one of the questions I want to ask is, has he demonstrated uh, his grace to you in very clear and unambiguous ways? And more importantly, have you taken advantage of and made use of those uh, ways in which he demonstrates his grace? We call those means of grace, don't we? And so I want to uh, have you... Ask yourself, are you regularly feeding on God's word? Do you hear it, read it, study it, memorize and meditate on it? And I, and I trust you do and, and, uh, and will grow in that. Do you avail yourself of the benefits of his own body, the church? You know, so many don't come to church. And so many that do make a beeline for the door uh, right after the benediction. Do you... Take advantage of the fellowship with others with whom the Lord has redeemed. Uh, do you take advantage of one of the primary means of grace? And we're going to talk about it, the Lord's table. So I'm, I'm amazed at the way the Lord uses his prophets to demonstrate his grace. 
and to demonstrate the truths of the gospel. Some of my favorites are Ezekiel. You know, there's, there's very few in the Bible that go to extreme lengths where the Lord condescends to communicate to his people. Um, and, uh, for example, uh, in uh, Ezekiel is writing to the people in Babylon. They're already in captivity. He's on the river. And he, uh, the Lord actually presents Ezekiel with a scroll, with a Bible, if you will. And he is told to do what? Eat it. Eat it. Just like he told um, uh, Jeremiah and just like he told John in the book of Revelation. Eat it. Make it a part of you. And so I think that's really, really fascinating that he would, uh, he would do that. Uh, it's, you know, kind of like, okay, take a piece of that and eat it. Okay? And guess what? It's sweet. The Word of God is always sweet. See, now that I got your kids' attention, you guys come see me after church and you can, you can have a taste of, of my scroll. Um, and so the Word of God, in all three instances where he is told, they are told to eat God's Word, it's very sweet. Now, the message is sometimes hard to swallow, especially for the hearers, but it's always sweet. Um, and there's plenty of examples. One of my favorite is, is Ezekiel, where the Lord tells him, you know, I, I want you to explain and demonstrate what's going to happen, who I am, and what, what, what is the condition of my people. He tells him, shave your beard, shave your hair, weigh it in a scale in three equal parts, lay it out. On this model, this clay model of, Jerus- of, of Jerusalem, the first pile, I want you to take your sword out and hack it. Because a third will um, be uh, chopped and perished by the sword. One of those piles, I want you to light on fire. Um, and then the other pile, I want, <laughs> excuse me, the Word of God is, I'm supposed to call meditating on the Word of God. <laughs> Um, the other pile of hair, he says, I want you to scatter it. Throw it up in the wind, because that's what's going to happen to a third of you. He says, but before you do that, take a pinch of hair and put it in your pocket, because that's all I'm going to save is a remnant. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the Lord uses these amazing examples to communicate to his people. And we shouldn't be surprised when he uses very, very um, intimate human relationships to explain the gospel to explain what he's done, who he is, and uh, uh, to explain who we are and what we have done. And a lot of times you see examples of that, a father and a son. Um, a husband and wife and the covenant of marriage. And that is the topic of today, of today's scripture. And so I've titled uh, today's sermon, What to Do About My Sin. What to Do About My Sin, Quid Pro Quo. Or hocus pocus. Now, I'm not trying to dazzle you with my vast understanding of Latin, because I know very little about Latin. I took a homeschool course with my daughter many years ago, uh, a Latin course, and uh, I came out remembering only one thing, malus canis. And it reminds me of one of my favorite cartoonists, which is Gary Larson. You know Gary Larson, right? He loves doing cartoons, and he portrays people as animals, as dogs, as, you know, as different animals often. And so one of my favorite cartoons that he has done is he shows a church and all the congregation are dogs, you know, men dogs, women dogs. And the, uh, 
And the preacher, of course, is a very well-dressed dog. And guess what his message is? Malus canis. Bad dog, bad dog, bad dog. Anyway, um, there's been a lot in the news about quid pro quo. And so I thought I'd use it in my sermon. And so, um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Hopefully, the sermon will, the title will make sense as we go along. But I've chosen one of my favorite books is the book of Hosea. And in the book of Hosea, the Lord uses the theme of unfaithfulness in marriage to describe his relationship to his people. And I think it's one of the most beautiful stories of redemption. And in the book of Hosea, you will see one of the most stark contrasts between the old covenant and the new covenant or the gospel. And so I have uh, chosen uh, the, I I really liked NIV, so I apologize. I know the uh, blue Bibles are in ESV, but I just happened to like NIV the way it rendered this. Uh, And so uh, now hear the word of God. Uh, It's printed in your bulletin. In the book of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblan, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said to him, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. In the place, um, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will be united, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And then starting again in chapter 2, verse 1, Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Then down to verse 13, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. 
you will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I'll make a covenant with them, for them, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle. I will abolish from the land that they may lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my people love to the one I called not my loved ones. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and left lek of barley. This is the word of the Lord. So in this scripture from the book of Hosea, the Lord uses uh, what is intended to be a very, very, very intimate relationship, marriage, um, and the experience between a man and a woman. And the range of uh, emotions and experiences that go with that relationship um, are very powerful. Uh, In marriage, we experience sometimes the highest of all uh, emotions, love, adoration, acceptance, friendship, hope. And on one other extreme, we can experience the complete opposite. Isolation, anger, frustration, and even disdain. Um, And so in marriage, there's a broad, broad spectrum of experience. And marriage um, just engenders, just in in, in and of itself, engenders um, just some very powerful emotions. Uh, Not... um, especially when you introduce such themes like unfaithfulness or adultery or abandonment and rejection and even abuse. And so the Lord uses in the book of Hosea the sin of adultery. um, And he does so not just because it's an insidious sin in and of itself, uh, but it's a picture, right? It's a picture of spiritual adultery, um, and it also highlights um, the importance of the um, marriage covenant and the covenant aspect of marriage. In the book Intimate Allies uh, by Dan Allender and uh, Tremper Longman, he says this, adultery is like the worship of false gods. It allows for the passion that God intended without bowing the knee to the one whom we were called to love. Adultery is not merely intimacy with the wrong person. It is union with someone who will never require us to face our sinfulness 
or draw out or draw forth out glory so that we are more and more in awe of God. It's intimacy without commitment. Flight from the struggle of intimacy without ever facing our part in the loss. And so if you have ever been the victim of the sin of adultery, then I hope and pray that you can empathize with the Lord and hopefully also sympathize with the perpetrator. Um, And for obvious reasons, as painful as that might seem. And so the Lord instructs this man of God, Hosea, um, to do something that I think all of us would find shocking. Some commentators, our very own beloved John Calvin, um, really uh, was unsure that God actually had him do this. And he felt as though the Lord just wanted him to play the part before the people of Israel and not actually go marry a uh, an adulteress. And so... But either way, it doesn't matter. It still communicates God's heart in this matter. And so, um, and it communicates and illustrates the nature of his relationship with his people. And so he wants Hosea to really get it, really understand it, you know, really um, have uh, firsthand experience in a very personal way. And so in order for Hosea to do that, and that's what the Lord is, is doing. But he also demonstrates the old and the new covenant or the gospel through the person of Hosea's wife and the names of her children. And so let me give you a little historical context real quick about, uh, uh, about the, the time Hosea was God's spokesman. He was God's prophet uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel. Recall that The kingdom of Israel, often referred to as the house of Joseph, or sometimes Ephraim, um, because uh, the the Ephraim tribe uh, was the territory that housed the capital cities of the northern kingdom and and made up, composed of the royal families. So uh, remember, going back, because of Solomon's idolatry, God promised to rip the kingdom out of um, David's family. Uh, rip it from Solomon's hands, and that it was God's plan to divide it. And he was divided uh, politically. Ten tribes would go to the north, and really essentially one tribe would stay, one tribe, Judah, would stay in the southern uh, kingdom. And so the northern kingdom gladly revolted from the family of David, uh, from Solomon's uh, son, Rehoboam, um, and they picked their own king, didn't they? Jeroboam. And uh, he was not from the line of David. Uh, they set up uh, in the northern kingdom. They set up their they set up their capital first in Shechem, which is really interesting. Remember, that's at the heart of Canaan. That's where God first promised to Abraham, "I'll give this land to your offspring in Shechem." And um, and later they moved the capital to Samaria. And so the new king uh, Jeroboam. Uh, rejected God's command to worship in Jerusalem and, um, and to worship at the temple in Jerusalem built by Solomon. And so instead, what did he do? He established two temples to, for the people to worship. He said, you're not going down to Jerusalem um, because then there's, there's this risk of becoming unified again. 
And so it's interesting, he set up a, a temple, two temples, one along his southernmost border in Bethel, a mere 12 miles from Jerusalem, and uh, a one along his northernmost border at the town of Dan. And he commissioned the construction of two calves, one for each temple, and um, two golden calves. And they appointed their own priest without regard of being from the uh, tribe of Levi and, uh, and created alternative festival dates. Remember, the Lord had get, given very specific instructions on these feasts and festivals in which the people of God would remember him, and they created their own. And so some would say that the northern kingdom under the leadership of Jeroboam, some would say he didn't really reject God. Um, He didn't really totally reject God and the worship of God. He just redefined it. Um, Does that sound familiar? (laughs) I hope so. Um, We do that all the time. And so lest you think we're not capable of this kind of outrageous behavior, consider the phrase that you see throughout the Old Testament, which says they set up for themselves idols. And that was just a common refrain throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Judges all the time. And what it meant was, in those days, Judges 17.6, in those days Israel had no king, so everyone did as they saw fit. And so that's what we do, right? Without a king, we do what we see as we see fit. So the northern kingdom, real quick, lasted 200 years. Um after which they were invaded by the Assyrians and, um, and carted away. And, and all 19 of the northern kingdom kings, you know, you do some searches on them, good king, bad king. They were all bad. They were all evil. Um, and so they were a wealthy, prosperous nation at this time. They were very religious. Canaanite gods, there were over 40 different Can, uh, Canaanite gods in their in their catalog of gods and ezekiel said this about the northern kingdom Um, he said they were arrogant overfed and unconcerned with the poor and needy and he actually and he actually calls um he has some interesting choice names for the northern and the southern kingdom he compares them to two sisters and he calls them sodom and gomorrah (laughs) and so anyway um so, so let's look at what the Lord asked Hosea to do. He said, marry an adulterous woman. Uh, some translations say a habitually promiscuous and unfaithful woman. But the implication here, really from Scripture, is that she was much more than that. This was her profession. She was a professional, uh, habitual, uh, she was a prostitute. And he said, take for yourself children of unfaithfulness. And so that implied that one or more of her children were not even Hosea's. And um, so he says, take take her on. And so the children would not even be legitimately his. And it's interesting. Why would the Lord tell him to do that? Because this was such an accurate picture of his people. And he says, they were guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Notice that, first of all, I'm I'm amazed that the Lord uses the reference. He doesn't always use it. You know, he talks about his people as his servant Israel. 
his son, but, but there's only a handful of times when he refers to his people as his wife. And I just think that's, that's beautiful because you rarely see God express that from his heart, his wife. Isaiah 54 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of heaven. And so it's interesting that her sin is not just an isolated case. Adultery, oh, just a slip up, you know. Uh, But he refers to it as the vilest form or the vilest adultery. This is open adultery. This is flagrant, in-your-face rejection of God. Not only flagrant, but completely unrepentant. Things were so far gone, way past any hope of and possibility of reconciliation, irreconcilable differences. Let's look at her children. The naming of her children is profound. The first child, a son, is named Jezreel. And the Lord says, because I will punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I'll break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. The bow was armament, and I'm putting an end to their military in this valley. And so you can look up the history of of that, Jeroboam and uh, Jehu. Uh, Jehu was actually his grandfather. And he was guilty of some of the most violent killings to usurp the throne when he came to power. And uh, it's interesting because the Lord really told him, go deal with Ahab. Ahab was a wicked king, but Jehu did way too much. He went way too far. We talk about saying too much, he did too much. And there's question about whether he did it, what was his motivation, but he murdered a lot of people. And the Lord said that he was going to avenge the death for what the, the killings uh, that happened 150 years prior to Hosea's writing this. So, but just think of Jezreel as a place of judgment. Okay, So the day of Jezreel would not be a good day for the people of Israel. Um, the second child Gomer ha- has gives birth to is a daughter. And he says, name her this, name her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved or no mercy or no compassion. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should forgive them. And I think it's interesting that the words, Hebrew words for love and mercy and compassion or pity, they're all related. They're all related. And so, and they're all linked to forgiveness. So think about that when you consider what it means to love your neighbor, right? He says, yet I will show mercy, mercy, love, and compassion to Judah. I will save them. And so it's interesting, the Lord reserves the right to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Um, God, uh, the Lord in Ezekiel, accuses the southern kingdom, Judah, of being actually worse than the northern kingdom. The third child is Lo-Ami. 
which means you're not my people and I'm not your God. Literally, it means I am not your I am. I'm not your God. How could the Lord say this to his people? It's almost the opposite of adoption, isn't it? It's rejection. You're not my people and I'm not your God. I'm most certainly not your God. Um, You've got plenty of gods, Canaanite gods that you worship. And uh, I'm not one of them. I know where you stand. And so, I hope you see that Hosea's wife is an accurate picture of our spiritual condition. I see me in her. Um, and I hope uh, you do too. This is her, this is his people in all our sin before grace abounded. And so, a lot like Gomer, we were not seeking God. Um, we weren't even sorry for our sins. And we were, most of the time, not repentant. And I love Romans 5.8 says, God, but God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Hosea's wife and three children is a picture that represents also the conclusion, the, the conclusion to the old covenant. After delivering His people from Egypt, they're at, they're at Mount Sinai. The Lord spells out His covenant and His terms and condition of His covenant. And what does He say? He says, I will give you this for that. It's, um, it's really, think of it as a quid pro quo. This for that. All right? You've heard a lot about that in the news lately. And I'll tell you a little secret. There's always a quid pro quo. There is always a quid pro quo. There's a quid pro quo with the Lord. Okay? Um, There's never a time when there isn't a quid pro quo. God's justice demands something. There's never something for nothing. And so, um, the this is what? I'll be your God. You can be my people. Uh, For what? For your obedience, your unconditional obedience. You will obey my laws, my statutes, my commands, my precepts, keep my Sabbaths. If you do that, I'll be your God, and you will be my people. Or else what? You'll be cursed. And so the summary is that God's people um, is really demonstrated by this unfaithful wife, uh, uh, inability to keep his covenant, judgment, No mercy, no love, no compassion. You're not my people, and I am certainly not your God. How's that for good news? And then, from one verse to another, you see a complete radical change. A complete radical reversal. You see, you go from the old covenant right to the new covenant. The gospel. You see the gospel here. Starting in verse 10, you get a glimpse of the New Covenant. He says, Yet the children of Israel, the people of God, will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Clearly a reference to the promise he made to Abraham. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. In other words, you were not my people. I'm not going to call you just my people. I'm going to call you my children, my sons, my daughters. And the Lord recalls his promise uh, to Abraham. 
and points to the, to the new covenant or to the church. And so the faithful, unblemished bride of Christ. And the Lord so radically restores those who were previously not his people and into his children. Beautiful picture, isn't it, of adoption. And so Paul actually quotes the same verse in Romans 9 when he emphasizes that God saves his people, Jew and Gentile. And I think uh, it's just a beautiful picture of the church. And that's why he says in verse 11, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will, will be united and they will appoint one leader, Christ, and will come out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So there's this lingering question, though. How can he do this? How can God do this? She's not just a little bit unfaithful. She's extremely unfaithful. And she is completely unrepentant. There's no indication that she wants to repent. Okay? And so moving to verse 13, he says, I'll punish her for her idolatry. She went after her lovers. She pursued them. But me, she forgot. She forgot me. James Burton, in his commentary, All Sins Are But a Variation of the Theme of Forgetting God. You see, selfishness is forgetting that others are created in the image of God. Pride is the absence of any thought or awareness of God at all. It's a preoccupation with self. He says, Worry is the sin of forgetting God's providence. Envy is the sin of forgetting God's blessings, which He has bestowed upon us. Focusing on what we don't have instead of what we do have. And so to be sure, the Lord punishes her and afflicts her. And please, please do not look at that in a negative way. It's, it's a sign of God's mercy. You know, he destroys and abandons his enemies. His loved ones he disciplines. He takes, some blessing, he takes the blessings from her. In fact, it says in, in the passages that we didn't read, it says he blocks her from completely self-destructing. John Calvin said, Punishment which God is about to inflict on this ungodly people would not only be just, but also necessary. Um, and so the Lord is not just satisfied with punishing his people, though, is he? Let's look at verse 14. What does he do? What should he do? What would you do if you were in his place? Verse 14, he says, Therefore, I am going to allure her. I will turn her, incline her, persuade her. I will change her. Um, And what does he do? He takes her back to the wilderness. Remember that place where I cared for you in the wilderness? Um, And after that, after he changes her, what does he do? What does he do? Look there at verse 14. He says, I will speak tenderly to her. Speak words of comfort. I'll speak to her heart. Speaking to the heart always implies words of comfort. It's the gospel. That is the gospel message. Do you hear words of comfort from the Lord? Do you hear words of tender mercy? from him even when you're unfaithful and unrepentant see it's precisely those words of tender mercy that are meant to lead us to repentance 
Or do you, as Paul said, show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Well, what happened to the message of you've got to first believe and then repent? And then God will show mercy to you. Well, that's not the gospel, is it? That is just not the gospel. Repentance is always a response to what God has already done. It is always a response to something God does first. So what are the results of this radical change? What are the results um, in her repentance? Well, in verse 15, she ex- we experience God's favor, don't we? And... Um, There's lots of ways in which that restoration becomes evident. But one of the things I love is it says she will do what? She'll sing. She will sing. And that's one of the things that is evident that the Lord changes your heart. He puts a song in there as well. But he says in verse 16, In that day you will call me your husband. Your husband. You will no longer call me your husband. Master, you will call me your husband. You'll realize I'm your husband. I'm the faithful one. I'm the one that kept covenant. You'll realize and you'll call me your husband, not your master, not just someone you serve along with those other Canaanite gods to get something from. And so this is covenant marriage language. And then verse 19 through 20, he goes into a series of words that I think are the most beautiful in the entire Old Testament. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. Forever. What does that sound like? I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. I will betroth you in Christ. And and the significance of the Old Testament betrothal was was the the groom would enter into a commitment uh, to marry uh, this young lady and he would spend a long period of time preparing for her, preparing his house, preparing his job. In the meantime, he was he was betrothed to her, right? And they were not, they didn't come together. They, they didn't have any communion or union. They didn't live together. But they were married. They were considered married. That's why it took a divorce to break a betrothal, right? Remember Joseph, Joseph and Mary. He was betrothed to Mary. And when he found out she was with child, he decided to divorce her. And, uh, and so this is a, a beautiful picture of the Lord betrothing us to himself. And he goes away, and we were betrothed to him. We haven't seen the wedding yet, right? That's why Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and, uh, and I will return. And so I like this other version. It says One version says, I will make you my wife forever. I'll make you my wife in a way that is righteous, in a, matter, in a manner that is just, by a love that is gracious, and by a motive that is mercy. But still, the lingering question is, how can he do this? How can God do this? And how can he go from this, you're unfaithful, I don't love you, you deserve judgment, 
to, I'm going to make you mine. How can he do that? Is it legal? Why should he restore her? All right, after what she has done. Adultery, after all, was a capital offense in that time. Still is in some parts of the world. How could he restore and forgive her, draw her back, love her, betroth her, and uh, take her children? And what does he do? Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife, though she is loved by another, and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred cakes. Verse 2, so I bought her. I bought her for the price of a slave. I bought her. Half in money, half in produce. How could the Lord do this? How could he do this? How could God take us to be his very own when he gets nothing in return? Absolutely nothing. Well, we know what he does and we know what it costs him. And to do that, we need to look at another child, don't we? One born 700 years later, another son. A son not born to a prophet, not born to a king, not born to a priest, but one who would be prophet and priest and king. The faithful son, the obedient son, the one who existed before all time in the beginning who was in the beginning with God, who was God, through whom this child, was, all things were created. Born as a baby. Imagine those little hands and feet. Nothing more beautiful than baby's hands and feet. But imagine those holy hands and feet created so that nails would be driven through them. And so what does the Lord do? What does he want? What does he want us to do? Just obey him? Do what he commands? Or love him the way he loves us? And so what does it cost him? We know it costs his son. He was born for the sole purpose of redeeming his people. And you think about it. We will never hear those words. We will never be called lo ruhama, lo ami. You're not mine, and I don't love you, and you deserve judgment. We'll never hear that. Who did hear that? You know, the scriptures say that he was led as a, uh, as a lamb before it shears and, la- and a lamb to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth, but he did open his mouth, didn't he? And what did he say? In his broken body and in his humanity, hung on his lips a question to his father. And what was that question? Why? Why? Why have you forsaken me? Do you think he knew? Of course he knew why he was there, why he was forsaken. He couldn't help but ask, why have you forsaken me? How about the offenses of the unfaithful? And you that have experienced unfaithfulness, you know you can't just gloss over that. And so what does he do? Does God just wave his holy hand and say, hocus pocus, you're forgiven? Hocus pocus, I'll completely, completely forget what happened? Hocus pocus, I'll just forget your sins. And what's even more shocking to consider, does he just wave his holy hand and say, hocus pocus, you're now pure? As if you have never been unfaithful at all? 
as if you have been utterly faithful. Well, it so happens that that's exactly what he does. And he doesn't wave his holy hand. He holds both hands out with nail scars in them for all to see. And he utters these four words that summarize the gospel. Not the magical incantation that has been in the world ever since the church began, hocus pocus. You see, early Christians were accused of a lot of things. And the society at the time was very suspicious of these people called Christians, especially when they came to this, the Lord's table. And so those four words that the Lord uttered, they made fun of. They said, what are they doing back there in that church? What are they doing? Are they, are they, is it magic? Is it cannibalism? What is it? They're repeating those four words that, that they say their Lord said. And they called it hocus pocus, some magic. And what did he say? The Lord said, hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. This is my body. This is my body. And what a. There's no other summary of the gospel than those four words. That's all we need. This is my body. This is my body given for you. This is my body. This is my blood, my life, my cross my resurrection, my ascension, all for you. What about the quid pro quo? Doesn't God demand a quid pro quo? A this for that? He does. The problem is it's, we have no this to bring. You see, the this is Christ. There is no quid pro quo. There's only a hocus corpus meum. Hocest corpus meum. This is my body given for you. Will you trust him? Will you worship him? Will you follow him? Will you lay down your life for him and for others? I trust you will. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you so much for loving us in such a way um, and transforming our life in such a way that we clearly do not deserve. Thank you for your precious and beautiful mercy, for betrothing us to yourself in love. In Jesus' name, amen.